Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. According to the USDA plant hardiness zone maps, Iowa is in Zone 5. When you're buying plants, that's important information to have, but what exactly does it mean? Mark Wiederlechner is an affiliate associate professor of horticulture at Iowa State University, and he is here to help us understand. He used to work on those maps for the USDA. Hello, Mark. Well, good morning, Charity. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. And let's start with the basics. How are those zones determined? They're determined by looking at past winters. You look back in time in the case of the USDA's map, they look 30 years back in time at 30, the the most recent 30 winters. And then they look at each winter individually and determine for each place in the United States, what was the lowest temperature achieved that particular winter? So that's the, the, the low spot, the minimum temperature. And once they've got those 30 minimum temperatures figured out, they average it together, and that's what gets mapped on the hardiness zone map. It is the average of the 30 coldest days for the 30 previous winters. All right. So this is uh, based on history. This is a measurement that looks backward in time. Why is that important to understand? Well, if climate were perfectly stable and unchanging over time, it would give us a really good sense of what to expect moving forward. If we want to plant a tree or a shrub, any plant, that lives for a long period of time, for many years in the landscape, we want to know what it's going to encounter because at certain points, plants are really vulnerable to damage by cold. We don't want to lose those plants. So if if climate is really stable, we look at that last 30 years and say, well, in this spot, we can expect to go down to, let's say, here, here in Ames, minus 15 Fahrenheit. Let's make sure that we don't plant plants that die at minus 8 Fahrenheit. We want to keep them going. So that's that's the idea. Of course, climate isn't perfectly stable. Everybody knows that it's a dynamic thing and, and it's going to change over time. So the the more it changes, the less predictable it is, the less you can rely on that hardiness zone to be um, your guide directly, if it if things are really variable, you might want to err on the side of safety and plant a plant that's going to handle something that's even colder than where you are. Okay, so it's an imperfect tool, but it's also a really incredibly useful tool because obviously, you know, we know that we're in zone five and that gives us a pretty good chance at having those plants survive, right? It really does. And we've been tracking this kind of information for a very long time. So most nurseries, most garden centers, most references have pretty good data on you know what a plant can handle so you you can 
find out, you know, that this particular tree is a zone four tree or a zone two tree. There's, you know, data going back all all the way to at least the 1960s, sometimes much further back. Um, we, we've really been pretty successful following a system like this. If, if you're careful and pay attention, um, you know, you, you get plants that live a long time. And as you said, though, there can be events that might kill off a plant anyway. And and that's important to understand as well, that this, this is not a guarantee. It really isn't. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that the hardiness zones are based on the lowest temperature of the year. But sometimes you don't need that kind of extreme low temperature to injure a plant. Plants are really vulnerable at certain times of the year to damage besides damage in the midwinter. Um, as they're getting ready for winter, they go through a process called hardening. And if they haven't reached their full level of hardening, if they're, if they're not ready for winter yet, and we happen to get a sudden cold snap, let's say in September, early October, you can get an awful lot of in injury to a plant right then and there. Um, and the same thing happens late in the winter, early in the spring. If there's a really, really warm spell and the plants have already gone through their dormancy and have had their rest satisfied and they're, they're waiting for spring and wow, we have a, a week of really warm weather and then it turns around and goes back to being really cold again, not not crazy cold, but maybe even like 20 degrees, once again, you can get an awful lot of damage. So there are, there are many, it's much more subtle in terms of any individual plant in any individual place than the hardiness zones would indicate. Right. Well, and I think we are all aware of those spring events because we're I think we're all so eager for spring. We're all so ready. But then we can also see the damage immediately. Uh, for example, last year, I remember we had an incredibly warm day, a surprising warm day. And it was just as the blossoms on my cherry tree were blooming. And it was so hot mm -hmm. that day that the blossoms were actually damaged by the heat. And then we didn't get any fruit last year. So those are the kinds of events that we're very tuned into. Those fall events yes. that can do so much damage, we're probably a little less aware of, of the damage that they're doing because those plants are either starting to go dormant or already looking dormant by the time one of those cold snaps hits. That's the kind of thing we have to wait until spring to see what kind of damage is done, right? That That's true. Um, a lot of those sort of go under the radar, and um, they're often manifest in the spring with bark cracking or dieback. Um, sometimes you won't lose a whole plant, but you'll see that parts of it are injured. Um, yeah, you, you, you may not notice it because, you know, these plants are all sort of heading towards dropping their leaves and going dormant um, when the damage occurs. But uh, oftentimes you will, you will see it in the spring and you won't know exactly why. 
Climate change is very real. It is happening. We're all experiencing the effects of it. But climate and weather, of course, we know are two entirely different things. We also know that these extreme weather events seem to be a big part of climate change so that those very hot events in the summer, those very cold events in the winter, those very strong winds, the kinds of things that we've been dealing with over recent years. Do you see climate change changing the zone maps? Hmm. Well, we know that when the new map, the most recent map came out in 2012, that um, there were shifts in zones. And um, at least in the eastern United States, those shifts were generally northward. Um, And I don't think that was just because the map was produced better than the previous map was, even though it was, I I think those reflected real changes in those 30-year periods. And um, from what I'm seeing in the horticultural literature about people being able to push less hardy plants further north, that, um, that trend's probably going to continue. You mentioned uh, in the spring when the plants in Iowa have had enough rest. The dormant period has been long enough that that as the weather heats up, things can happen. Iowa has been known as sort of being a Goldilocks climate. We think a lot about the importance of that growing season and the warmth and the sunshine, but the cold part of the year has been a really important part of how plants thrive in Iowa as well, right? That's true. Um, especially for our fruit crops, um, you have to have a certain number of hours of cold weather to fulfill the dormancy of the plants and then to l- let them flower normally. If, if you are going, let's say, from Arkansas south, it's really hard to grow apple trees because they don't get enough cold to satisfy the dormancy. Um, sort of the flip side, though, is... We may be a Goldilocks state for certain things, but I know here in Ames, um, it's really hard to grow apricots. Um, What happened to your cherry tree happens quite regularly to apricot trees. Their their flowers often get damaged and and won't produce um, fruits because they come out so early. It's just, it's not a good match. So I I think that that the, the success of Iowa horticulture is based on matching the right the right plants, the right crops to our place. Often during this time of the year, uh, Mark, on this show, we find ourselves talking about, oh, it's been so cold. Will the plants survive? How will this affect, you know, various <laughs> plants, various pests as well? This right. winter, we have had a little bit of extreme cold. That uh, blizzard wasn't very pleasant. But we've also had a really mild January as someone yes. who thinks a lot about cold hardiness, does that concern you when we have a mild January? Well, I, I think it, it's been mild, but as long as temperatures are going below freezing at night, I think we're, we're pretty safe. Um, when you have a whole string of days where you don't go below freezing, then, then you start wondering you know, are our plants going to go through their rest properly? Um, are they going to get enough um, chilling? 
and sort of the flip side, might they start growing too soon? Um, but as, as long, even if it's it's relatively mild, I think as long as we're freezing at night, we're we're okay. All right, and of course, there's a lot of winter yet to come. <laughs> even if we've sure had is. a mild January, who knows? Who knows yes. what is coming next? Mark Wiederlechner is with me today. He is an affiliate associate professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. We've been talking about our plant hardiness zone, Zone Five in Iowa, and Mark Wiederlechner used to work on those maps for the USD. For more gardening information and tips, you can subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. Find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics. Treatment for varicose veins and spider veins. Also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It is Horticulture Day today. With me today, Mark Wieter-Lechner, Affiliate Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. We've been talking about cold hardiness and our USDA plant hardiness zone so far. But of course, you can join the conversation with your questions about any of the plants or trees in your life, the things you'd like to grow or grow better, you can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowastate.org. Not Iowa State, at iowapublicradio.org. That's talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Aaron Style is also here of Iowa State University Extension. <laughs> Hello, Aaron. Good morning. Thank you both so much for being here today. And as I was just saying a few minutes ago, this time of year, we're usually fretting over, oh, my gosh, has it been too cold? Is everything going to die? What <laughs> what should we be worried about this spring? But what should we be worried about because of how this winter has gone? We don't have a lot of snow cover on the ground in a lot of the parts of the state, or at least we haven't until recently. Um, and, and Mark or Aaron, either one of you can weigh in on that. Snow cover can be really important. Should we be worried about a lack of snow cover? I think we should, because in many parts of the state, the ground is really dry. And dry ground freezes deeper. Um, it freezes colder. Um, when you look at um, a tree or shrub, for example, Typically, one of the most vulnerable parts of it are the roots. Um, they don't develop the same degree of cold hardiness that the tops of the plants do. And so if we have really dry ground and poor snow cover and we get even an average winter, let's say where you do go down to 15 below zero for an extended period of time, um, you might start seeing damage below ground. Um, I, I do I do think that um, this last snow that came in here in Ames and made everything really pretty is is a good thing, and I hope we can keep our snow cover for a while. 
The I have been watching. I planted a bunch of things just before it it froze this year. A bunch of shrubs, native woody plants, and so every time it gets a little bit warmer and rains, I think well that's probably a good thing. We have had this sort of up and down with the temperature. We have had some rain, although not a lot of rain. Um, thinking about the drought that so much of the state has experienced, I mean, any precipitation is a good thing. Do we have a, a feel for how this winter has contributed to or or helped to alleviate the drought? I, I think that it's minimal. I, I mean, that there has been some good um, that's come in terms of uh, winter precipitation. It's not a time of the year when we rely on, on much precipitation, but at least it isn't evaporating away. Um, I know that Des Moines did really well with this last storm and, and he had more precipitation on that particular day than they've had before. It was like a record, but it wasn't even an inch. So, yes, it's helping, but I don't think it's a big help. What we really need to see is is some good spring storms, um, not uh, with uh, tornadoes and hail and all right, that, but right. uh, with uh, s- some good moisture. Because, you know, the, the, the plants that have um, not been watered, the, the, the trees in your yard, perhaps, if you're not watering your lawns, um, probably did not go into winter as strong as they could have. There's plants that are stressed by drought typically don't have the resources to withstand the winter that they would if they were healthier. So um, there's going to be a lot of plants out there that are already stressed. And so they're, they're, they're not in optimal condition. All right. I keep asking you to, to tell me about the future, Mark. I think that's a problem that we all we all would love to have a little bit more clairvoyance in the whole horticulture department at Iowa State University. But alas, it is not to be. You can join the conversation no. with your questions. 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We've got a couple of lines open for your questions right now. And Patsy sent us an email question. She says, my bare root geraniums were sleeping away in their paper bags in a basement cellar type room. I looked at them last week and a couple are putting out new growth. What do I do? Leave them, pot them up, cut it back? Oh, yeah. So um, sometimes that you'll, you'll get some of this. Either there's still enough moisture around those plants that they're able to continue to grow. Um it's probably the most likely situation or it's a little too warm wherever you're storing them. And so they haven't, uh, they don't have that cool temperature to help kind of either slow or suppress kind of buds breaking out. Um, you can pot them up. Um, it depends on how far along they are. If they have just green buds, maybe just like a little bit of growth, they're probably fine to stay where they're at. Um, I always overwinter my geraniums as house plants. Um, uh, there is a lot of p- folks do have a lot of success, um, you know, doing this bare root thing and having those geraniums utilize the the carbohydrates that have, they have stored in those big, thick stems to kind of make it through uh, this part of the year and then be able to grow out when it gets a little bit warmer. But you can also in a nice sunny window. So they do quite well. So if you're worried about it. If it seems like it's a little more growth than you want it to be, you absolutely can pot it up and grow it as, as a house plant. 
um, and kind of go from there. What do you think, Mark? I, I'm wondering if the shoots that she's seeing might be really white and, and yeah. long and etiolated and that she has to be really, if, if they have gone too far, she has to be really careful with those to introduce them to light gradually so that they can harden up. Otherwise, just handling the plants, they might start breaking off. Yeah, on. yeah. And if you go to too much light too fast, they'll just fry right up. They will. Yeah, that's true. Yep. So depending on how they look too, um, it's okay that they're in a little bit of low light, uh, to, at least to get started here. Yeah. All right. Move with caution is what I'm hearing. Yeah. 866-780-9100 is the number to call with your questions. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And, of course, this is the time of year where a lot of us are looking at seed catalogs or nursery catalogs, and we're thinking about what we want to plant in the spring. And, Mark, when we look at those some of us would like a little more wiggle room with that whole plant hardiness zone. So when when you are making decisions, is there some wiggle room? Can you think, you know, maybe this zone four plant would do well here. Maybe this zone six plant would do okay. What do you think? Well, on the zone four plants, I don't worry too much. Um, generally, you can do fine with zone four plants here or zone three plants um, zone six plants are a little trickier because once you start getting those temperatures below about 10 below zero, you're likely to have damage on them. Can you work with that? Can you site the plant in a really protected spot? Is it a plant that grows low to the ground? Could you mulch it? Could you make sure there's snow cover on it? What can you do? to um, make to protect it from experiencing the really cold temperatures that might come once or twice a winter um, is it is it a plant that you could whack back like um, something like beautyberry where you could almost treat it more like an herbaceous perennial um, some of those kinds of plants you can you know, Grow, grow zone six plants and just work with the damage that might happen and still get something still get something pretty out of it. When we're shopping at a, a local in-person garden center, whether that's an independent nursery or, you know, part of a larger store, I think a lot of us feel really confident and comfortable just buying whatever they're selling there. But Mark, you want us to be armed with information when we go shopping as well, because sometimes uh, people will sell plants that won't grow well here. That's true. I, I think that nurseries and garden centers that are located in the Midwest um, and have been around for a while are usually pretty cautious about what they sell. Many of them stand behind the plants that they sell and, and will replace things that are lost. Um, there are also retailers out there that um, are more national in scope and they might not have um, that kind of commitment or that kind of understanding of the local climate. Um, I have been in big box stores here in Iowa and seen things in garden centers being sold that might be fine for St. Louis or Kansas City, but wouldn't be the sort of thing that you'd want to 
plant in, in Des Moines. And I don't think that, you know, they always have the most knowledgeable buyers or they're not targeting as well to location. So if you're going to shop in places like that, you really need to know what you're looking for first rather than just buy what looks pretty there in the store. And I can imagine there are people listening right now who are nodding their heads who are affiliated with independent nurseries saying, or just shop with us. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there, I'm sure that there are lots lots of these stores that don't employ people who, who are knowledgeable, who don't make that investment in their garden center that are probably um, getting plants that are, are chosen by somebody not in Iowa. So um, that's that's great advice. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Aaron, about doing your research when you're shopping? Well, the other thing that's interesting is that sometimes plants are sold and they're not intended to be around year to year. Um, and, but they look like a plant that might be intended to be around year to year. And so, um, there are certain, um, oh, there's a lot of corabels like this, right? Like that are, uh, corabel as a general rule, heuchera, um, does okay in Iowa. It's kind of shallow rooted. And so it, it can kind of heave up out of the ground really easily, if, especially if we have a lot of temperatures going up and down and up and down. But there are certain varieties, and they're marked as such, that are not winter hardy this far north. They're hardy to zone 6, sometimes even zone 7. And uh, we don't always notice that right away. But Corabel is also a very nice uh, container plant. It looks beautiful in mixed containers, and you can treat it like an annual if you want. Uh, and sometimes the price is such that you can do that, right? Like they're not even that, that terribly expensive. And so you look at it um, not realizing that this was never intended to be a perennial in your garden. Right. It was sold as an annual. Um, and you sometimes forget that. And then sometimes they're just absolutely not supposed to be here. <laughs> I, I've definitely been to big box stores and they have cedrus, which is the true cedar. And that is hardy to zone six. Um and there is like maybe like two square miles of the tail of Iowa. That's zone six. That's right. <laughs> if, if you lived in Keokuk, then, yeah. you know, you can ignore our yeah. zone five talk. Right. Yes. Right. And, and there's no way you're buying a cedar tree as a, as a temporary plant in most situations. Right. It's not, and so it's that not an annual. Just, yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of hollies that have been sold that way too. Yeah. Yep. And I, we've talked about hollies quite a bit on this show. <laughs> Again, you know, sometimes you just really, really want to plant and you want to give it a try anyway. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Whitney in Ames has a question that I think a lot of people, a lot more people are asking right now. She says, how do I change my yard to a clover and grass mix? How do I maintain that and how do I prevent unwanted weeds? Yeah. So um, interestingly, we talk a lot about establishing yards in the fall or the late summer, early fall. Um, and that is a good time to grow our cool season grasses from seed. Uh, if you want to introduce clover um, into your yard, they respond, actually clover responds very well to a spring seeding. And so you could overseed the lawn. If you can find a good source for the clover, um, you can overseed uh, early in the spring and, and hopefully it can kind of fill in some of the gaps that are there. Uh, 
managing the other weeds is very difficult. You can't use the traditional herbicides that we use in our lawns to manage weeds because uh, to those herbicides, clover is a weed and will affect them in the same way it would affect the dandelion or the creeping charlie or the plantain or whatever it might be uh, that you don't want necessarily in your yard. So um, a lot of times it's either if you want to use a herbicide, it's spot treating, but many times you don't want to use a herbicide either. And then it's it's um, uh, pulling, digging and pulling uh, selectively through the yard. Um, is is kind of probably the best way to do that. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, speaking of of using clover, I think uh, a lot of the stuff that blooms, a lot of the weeds that we have in our yard uh, do bloom early in the season. Dandelion's a great example. Creeping Charlie's a great example. Um, and they can be beneficial to pollinators. The problem is, is that sometimes their their bloom period is very short. So they have, they when they're in bloom, they're great. But then there's not much the rest of the year. And, and, um, so in that sense, they're not always the greatest addition. Clover blooms very well often throughout the season and it blooms despite being mowed, which is also really helpful. It's one of the reasons why it works so well. And it typically doesn't invade your garden beds like creeping Charlie yeah, does. Yeah. It's not quite as aggressive of a spreader, although it does, it does spread certainly. Um, and there are also, uh, just, kind of thinking about, you know, bee lawns or, I don't know, uh, clover lawns, freedom lawns. I've heard lots of terms for these. <laughs> yeah. um, there's there's some really great uh, varieties of clover out there now that have smaller leaves. And so they look a little bit more like lawn. Um, they kind of blend with the turf a little bit better. Um, and those can be really nice kind of uh, additions if you're if you're worried about that kind of coarse textured clover next to that really fine tech. You know, sometimes folks are worried about that stuff. Right. And, and those micro clovers or um, uh, kind of the small leaved col- clovers can be a really nice way to, to introduce these plants to your yard, which can be very, they're very good partners with turf grass um, and, and support pollinators and other things too. Do you think I'm that I could... People oh, are... yeah. Go on, Mark. I, I'm glad that, that people are looking at these finer clovers um, reminded me of something. Back in the 1980s, I was visiting a gene bank in Poland, and they had the Polish National Collection of Clovers, and they had some really beautiful, heavily flowering, really low-growing white clovers. And I made a comment to them saying, why that that would make a beautiful lawn, and they they were just kind of like, oh yeah, right. You know, they, they, <laughs> they 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 didn't pursue it at all. And at that time, people weren't weren't really thinking that way. But uh, it's it's nice to know that that's that's finally coming around. We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Mark Wieder-Lechner, Affiliate Associate Professor of Horticulture at ISU. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. Give us a call. 866-780-9100 is the number. 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and with me, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Mark Wieter-Lechner, Affiliate Associate Professor of Horticulture at ISU. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about all the things you'd like to grow or grow better. Give us a call, 866-780-9100. You can also send email to Iowa at iowapublicradio.org. And here's an email from Elaine in Webster City. She says, there's a planting bed all along the west side of my house where nothing will grow despite my improving the soil by adding bags of compost. How do I go about getting a soil test? Oh, a soil test. Yes. So um, you can do a soil test any time of the year. Um, Early spring is a time that some folks really enjoy doing it. Fall is another time that is a good time to do a, a soil test because then you have all winter to plan how you're going to address it. Um, you're going to go out to this area and you're going to collect small samples of soil from various spots within this bed down like maybe four, use a trowel to collect it. Um, and so maybe four, six inches or so, uh, you're going to put it all into a small bag and then you're going to mix those samples together so that you can kind of get a, a sampling of that, that area. Now, if you have separate areas that you're hoping to grow different things in, so like uh, the most extreme of this would be like a lawn and a vegetable garden. You would not want to mix the samples between those two things because you're going to treat the plants and you're going to fertilize the plants. You're going to do things differently in those two areas. So you would want separate soil tests for those two areas. But anything that's kind of you're going to be treating um, kind of uh, uniformly, um, you can include and collect those small samples. And then um, there are uh, uh, soil testing laboratories um, all over. Uh, private private soil testing laboratories um, in various parts of the Midwest. There are also a couple of other uh, universities that will do soil testing. There's a really nice resource available to folks on the Horticulture and Home Pest News website. If you just search for soil test and you put Iowa State behind it, you'll find this page and it gives you links to potential places to send your sample. And all of those places will um, give you their specific instructions. It'll look a lot like what I just described about how to send in a sample. And then the most important thing is wherever you send this sample in, make sure you note to them what type of uh, plants you're growing in that area. A lot of these labs specialize in soil testing for agronomic crops. And you would treat and fertilize and do very different things to the soil if you're growing corn and soybeans or alfalfa in it than you would perennials or vegetables or, or turf. So. Um, make sure that you note, uh, and there's way, there's places to do that on their forms, that this is a garden bed, and it'll come back with information that will help kind of uh, give you an idea of what you can do to that garden bed to improve the soil. Usually they come back with um, phosphorus, uh, the amount of phosphorus in the soil. Usually they come back with the amount of organic matter. The one number they typically don't give you that you think would be in there is the nitrate level. Um, and that's because nitrates change so dramatically over time. So a lot of times they just don't measure that. Um, but uh, the rest of that stuff is still very helpful in, in giving you kind of an idea of what's going on with your soil and uh, what you might do kind of broadly to to amend it to grow whatever it is you're trying to grow there. And given what Elaine said, you feel like a soil test is the right move at this point? Oh, we're always going to recommend a soil test, okay. Charity. <laughs> it's always good to know good what to you're yeah, to know what you're dealing with instead of guessing what you're dealing with. And the soil test can help you know. 
All right. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Our email is talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Travis is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Travis. Hi, how are you? Good. What would you like to talk about? Good. Hey, I am. So I live in the middle of Des Moines. I've lived here my entire life. Uh, and uh, I've always thought of my lawn as more of like a nice salad in that it's not all the same thing. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I have naturally growing clover. I've got creeping Charlie. I have um, wild strawberries that randomly pop up in the middle of my front yard. Uh, <laughs> but I have all sorts of things and I love uh my yard. I have never thought to myself, hey, let's tear it up and just plant a boring mono, you know, grass yard. Um, I love seeing all the pollinators, all the bees, all the uh, all the everything coming through my yard. Uh, all right. You sound like you are excited um, that, that other people seem to be getting on board with this in, in a bigger way. Travis's comment, though, makes me wonder about something because I know that Creeping Charlie can be invasive. It can outcompete a lot of native species. I know that our wonderful Richard Geron hates Creeping Charlie more than almost any any other plant (laughs) on the planet. Aaron, Mm -hmm. is there a clover that can outcompete Creeping Charlie in my lawn? Oh, um, interestingly, when conditions are right for the other plant, they can fare pretty well uh, against Creeping Charlie. Creeping Charlie really takes advantage of situations in our in our landscapes where turf and other plants like clover just don't thrive. And it tends to be shady areas. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, Creeping Charlie does okay in pretty wet areas too. And sometimes those plants don't perform as well in those situations. And so Creeping Charlie can win if, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Um, and, (laughs) and that's where it becomes really tough. And you layer on top of that, that it spreads both by seed and by runners, that it's a very aggressive spreader and it tolerates a wide range of soil types. It tolerates shade really well. And many of the other things we want to establish in our lawns don't tolerate shade quite as well. And you've got this plant that can be a little too much. Um, and so that's where it becomes kind of hard. You know, dandelions are everywhere, but they don't seem to like crowd out a whole bunch of stuff and take over an area. Right. Um, Creeping Charlie does. Mm-hmm. Um, violets feel that way too. They, they're, they're around. They love the shady areas, but they don't feel, I don't feel like violets are going to like rampage through no. and take over. They leave room for other things. Right. Um, and Creeping Charlie just doesn't. All right, probably well, why Richard hates it so much. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I, I know. <laughs> you can give us a call. Thank you so much for the call, Travis. You can give us a call with your questions. 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Danny in Iowa City says, my yucca has been slowly dying for a long time. It seems angered whether I water it more or less. I think the issue is the soil mix as it doesn't have sand like recommended, but in the state it's in, I'm worried that changing the soil will cause enough stress to kill it. What do you think? Oh, that, that's always a worrisome it, sound. It's a little, the, ooh. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's a little hard to say. Um, yuccas need really good drainage, and their roots do best when there's a lot of air in the soil. 
It doesn't necessarily have to be sand. I've seen yuccas growing on loss. I've seen them growing on gravel. But pretty much they don't want to have wet feet. They, they don't want to be in a saturated soil. So if this particular yucca is languishing, I have to wonder if the soil is just too heavy. It doesn't have enough air in it. And without moving it, if, if it's in a site like that, it's probably going to continue to decline and the person may lose it. Um, so better late than never, I guess, is to <laughs> t- take a chance and get it into a, a uh, more aerated soil um, if it's possible. Some of the best yuccas I've seen in, in kind of a classic garden setting are at the top of a berm or yes, like a, a, a high point at yeah. a high point in the garden. And it's because the drainage is better at that yeah. spot. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with that, Danny. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Bonnie says, this past Tuesday, the 17th, we drove into our driveway just as the sun was setting, and it shone on two of our front yard trees to the east of the driveway, revealing brilliant green. I scraped loose, very green moss. It went up the trunk quite a distance. What a surprise. Is this a bad thing? Tell me what this might mean for the health of the tree. I think there's nothing to worry about, really. Having moss growing on the trunk of a tree is not going to hurt the tree at all. Um, It just suggests that the moss found a a good place to grow that's got, you know, stable conditions and is moist enough. Um, So it isn't anything that I'd be particularly concerned about. No, and some trees have lichens on them too, which sometimes can look a little moss-like, and lichens are very common. And they're, they're, they're on a lot of more mature trees. They come in a lot of different colors. Green is one of them. Um, and they're not a problem either. They're just using it as a place to hang out. Yeah, and that those are indicators that the air quality is good enough to mm-hmm. support them. So if you have them on your trees, you know, you, you know you're living in a place with pretty decent air quality. I'm also trying to remember when the sun actually shone this week. So, Bonnie, I'm glad, I'm <laughs> glad you caught a couple of minutes of it. All right, here's a question from Lynn in Iowa City. The leaves on my rosemary plants are no longer dark green but have a light green mottled appearance. What could cause this? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that it's most likely spider mites. Spider mites are really common on rosemary when it's brought in over the winter and they would cause a mottled appearance. Um, you can test a kind of test for spider mites. When they're really bad, you'll see fine webbing uh, throughout the plant. But even without the webbing, if you hold a, a white piece of paper underneath the plant and kind of give it a gentle shake or tap, uh, there'll be some stuff that falls off of the leaves. If that dirt looking stuff moves around, there's spider mites. Um, when they get that bad, um, they can be really difficult to control. And rosemary is like, is like I don't know, like Cancun for spider mites or something. They just love it there. Um, and so it can be really hard to uh, kind of get it under control. Um, higher humidity will help. Um, insecticidal soap can help a little bit, uh, potentially um, giving it a good rinse down. And then just kind of hoping for the best. A lot of times these plants that I bring in for the winter, my only goal is to get them to spring. 
what condition they're in is another uh, another thing. But if I can at least keep them alive until the end of April and can get them outside after the threat of frost has passed, or even get them outside and pull them in like once every couple of weeks because it gets below freezing, then I've succeeded. Um, so uh, you may be able to keep it just green enough, just long enough to get it back outside. And then there are, you know, natural rains. There are some predators. There are other things to help kind of keep the spider mite population a little more in check than it does indoors. Three more months. Three more months. (laughs) Oh, man, that sounds like a long time, Charity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it does. Um, Charlie sent us an email wondering what zone Dubuque is in. And as I mentioned, I mean, most of Iowa is in zone five. There are a few spots up north that are are zone four, um, but you can find these maps online really easily. Uh, I do wonder, Mark, though, we've got a zone 5A, a zone 5B, the parts of the state that are zone four are zone 4B. How do you feel about those uh, gradations, breaking it down like that? Basically, they just let you know whether you're in the warmer part of Zone 5 or the colder part of Zone 5. Right here in Ames, we map right on the edge of 5A. We're pretty much right in the middle of Zone 5. Um, North of here is the colder part. I think, I don't have the map in front of me, but I think Dubuque is 5A. Um, so you're more likely to go below 15 degrees, minus 15 degrees in the winter than you would be, let's say, in Des Moines. But um, most of the time you don't see plants marketed with an A or a B after the, the zone number. And I don't think most people need to worry too much about that. It just it will tell you. Well, like, you know, if, if you're in zone 5A, maybe it's more important to plant zone 4 plants than it would be if you were down near zone 6 in the warmer parts of sure. zone 5B. All right. And here's a question from Brittany. I live in Des Moines and have a south-facing hillside that I would like to transform into a low-maintenance pollinator forageable native plant garden. Currently, the hillside is overgrown with volunteer trees. What are my options for clearing the hill? Ooh. Volunteer trees are some of the hardest weeds to manage, or at least to get rid of. Um, you have a couple of options. Uh, if you want to do herbicide-free, you're going to use a lot of muscle. Um, you're going to be digging and pulling, cutting. Uh, one of the things that's hard about woody plants is that a lot of times we, we think, oh, I'll just cut it off at the ground, and I'll keep cutting it off if it sprouts up. You will not be able to keep up with it. Um, those plants are very often have a much larger root mass than like a dandelion or some other kind of herbaceous plant, and they will be able to come back from that root mass uh, easily for quite some time, years um, probably. So uh, cutting them back often isn't the best way to manage them. You have to get that root mass out. The other option is to use a herbicide, a non-selective herbicide. The best way to use this is to, in this situation would be to cut the plant off and immediately treat that cut end of the stump. If it's a really tenacious woody plant like uh, mulberry um, or sometimes a tree Buck, of heaven, buckthorn. buckthorn, you may have to do it again a little bit later if it re-sprouts, but that can really help um, kind of get rid of those woody plants. And you do want to start with a clean slate when it comes to this, you know, establishing this new garden. So taking care of those plants will be really important. 
it seems like that might be a good opportunity for some of the the native woody plants as well, since Mm -hmm. you've had all those volunteer trees. Is that something she might want to think about, even planting things that are forageable like elderberry or serviceberry? Yep. Yeah, woody woody shrubs and trees are by far the lowest maintenance plants we could put in our gardens, and many of them can be very beneficial to native fauna and insects. Um, most of the plants that she's experiencing on this hillside are almost certainly not native. Um, it's probably Siberian elm, mulberry, buckthorn, tree of heaven. I mean, these are all just they're very tenacious woody trees and shrubs that. Um, take advantage of sites like this very readily. All right. You've got a challenge ahead of you, it sounds like, Brittany. Yeah. That's that's what you're saying. It's not Aaron. impossible, though. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's like not doable. It absolutely is doable and definitely worth the effort. All right. Well, we Aaron, don't know how many acres she's dealing with. Right. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully it's not that large. Aaron style, thank you so much. You're welcome. And Mark Wiederlechner, thank you. You're most welcome, Charity. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Mark Wiederlechner is Affiliate Associate Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. We got technical support today from Steve Cooper. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. Talk of Iowa.